again to Ken Drew's Real Dirt Gardening 2.0. I have to share some news with you. Uh, my 20th book, The New Shade Garden, is coming out this week, uh, the middle of April. And uh, I'm, of course, I'm very excited about that. But I also have been thinking about how I'm going to talk about this book. And it, as you heard, the title, The New Shade Garden, it is about shade. I wrote a book about shade gardening in 1992, which was so far my best-selling book and really popular. People still come up to me and either have an old copy that they're clutching in their arms and say, this is my Bible, or they tell me stories about how that got them interested in gardening and how it changed its li their lives. And it's funny because when I wrote that book, nobody wanted to talk about shade. Uh, and often people would say, can I cut down my trees and get more sun into my garden? Well, sun gardening and gardening with lots of flowers and perennials and, of course, food gardening, those are all great things and a lot of fun. But uh, I, I personally don't want to be that hot in the summer. I want to go to the shady places where the temperature might be 15 to 20 degrees cooler. And of course, we know now that it's not the greatest thing in the world to get sunburned. Uh, and it's hard to protect yourself. But uh, for those two reasons, being cooler and being out of the sun, that uh, helped me get into the shade. And the Shady Garden, originally in 1992, was my garden in Brooklyn, New York. Then, uh, about 20 years ago, I found a new place for a garden, and it's a valley. And uh, on one side, there's ridges on either side of the valley so the sh uh, with tall trees. So I found myself in another shady garden. In the sunniest part of the garden, I get about 9 to 10 hours of sun. I, I can't grow tomatoes, for example. I, I have some pots of tomatoes way up by the road on the driveway, and that's the only place that I can grow tomatoes. Daylilies day in the second sunniest place uh, do okay, and I get flowers on daylilies, but uh, throughout the, a lot of the garden, the daylilies don't flower, or I get one flower on a, a plant that just limps along. Now, of course, there's thousands of wonderful plants that do thrive in the shade and uh, I want to thrive in the shade too. This book that I've written is not a, a reprint of the old shade garden book and in fact when I started to write it I didn't even go back to the old book. I didn't look at the book. The photographs are all new and there's over 400 of them but uh, the subtitle of the book is Creating a Lush Oasis in the Age of climate change. And that's really what the book is about. It's about the problems that we're facing and how we as gardeners can cope and deal with some of these problems. Of course, we all know that we have to reduce our carbon footprints and we have to change the light bulbs and we have to do everything we can to not only conserve energy but uh, and change the way we use energy and even maybe change the source of the energy, but we also have to conserve water and do other things to help the planet. And that's really what the book is about. And I, I found myself writing about shade when I was writing about climate change because that's one thing we as gardeners can think about to do less in the sun, to reduce our areas of lawn or eliminate them completely, to garden in the shade where water is, con is naturally conserved, and to look towards those plants that 
for many reasons we want to grow, but one reason is we want to save them because those plants are threatened. It's projected that by 2050, up to 37% of all animal and plant species will have become extinct in what some people are calling the sixth mass extinction on Earth. Now, you know I could go on and on and cite tons of statistics on things that have happened, and we only have to look at the California drought now in its fifth year, or the drought in Texas, or the way the rain comes when it comes in in our in my part of the country in the in the northeast our rain showers might be shorter but they're a lot harder and this, and uh, this last winter in 2014-15 we had snow snow almost every single week it would snow throughout the entire winter something i don't really remember happening in the past but there are things that we can do as humans and ways to cope, especially as gardeners, and that's what the book is about. Shade is looking good to 21st century gardeners. No one needs to be sold on the idea of finding shelter from the heat and sun anymore. As global temperatures continue to rise, we have more reasons to seek a retreat in the shadows. Our gardens and the world are changing. I was talking before about how in, back in 1992, when the Natural Shade Garden came out, people just considered shade a curse. I kept saying it was an opportunity. People with shady gardens would have some pachysandra, maybe, and uh, maybe a fern, or if if lucky, an astilbe or two. And even if you, if you went to the nursery, the plants for shade, there were just a couple. Even hostas weren't very popular back then. It's amazing to even consider that that was something that was happening. Uh, and hardly anybody grew woodland wildflowers, something that we all can do across the country. That was a different time, and uh, garden books were filled with gorgeous pictures of lush, ever-blooming borders. And that was the time when the sunny English flower border captured the imagination of American gardeners with tints and shades of soft lavender, pink and blue. In those days, far north Britain was never too hot. Gardens there basked in bright daylight with soft sun for long hours in the summer while the temperatures remained cool. In a given season, flowers would last many times longer than, than they do in the United States, and one might come upon lilacs blooming with roses, which I've seen in England. In the United States, lilacs are long gone by the time the roses begin to flower. In time, my audiences, the people I talked to, recognized that planting away from full sunlight under trees presented opportunities to grow some of the most exquisite and precious wildflowers that come from the world's temperate forests. And incidentally, not from England, because the last ice age scraped away much of Britain's native flora. On the other hand, the southeastern eastern United States is second only to China in the number of indigenous cold-hardy species. Now, fortunately, we're not talking about suffering with shade even uh, anymore, or heaven forbid, trying to get rid of shade by cutting down valuable trees. More people are trying to create shade instead. Of course, that doesn't mean that we don't want to have beautiful gardens. Now it might be a new idea, of the idea of making shade. We are adding canopies and awnings, pergolas and gazebos, 
and planting more trees for now and for generations to come, not only to help create shade, but also to reduce our carbon footprints. Since trees absorb and store carbon dioxide, or CO2, the primary greenhouse gas. When you see a tree sprout from a seed or a, a little seedling grow taller and taller, you might think that that tree is is growing because it's getting water from the ground, which is true, or nutrients from the ground, which is true. But what that tree is actually made of is carbon, and it's made of carbon that it's pulling out of the atmosphere. And as the tree gets larger and larger and taller and taller, what's making that tree is carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Now, we'd have to plant a lot of trees to make up for our very big American feet. It's no secret that since the days of the Industrial Revolution, fossil fuels like coal, oil, and gas have been burned at ever-increasing rates, leading to the rise in atmospheric gases like CO2 and methane from industrial livestock production. Since the 1880s, CO2 has risen by 40%. Evidence of the effects is everywhere and all the time. Have you noticed that summer heat waves seem to happen nearly every year? Temperature swings are more extreme than in years past, that rainy days are less frequent but often have much heavier downpours, that normal dry weeks in August may now stretch into months of drought. Even hurricanes act abnormally. For example, when Hurricane Irene took a sharp turn to the west in 2011, or when the following year Sandy led to ocean surges and destruction in areas where such events were rare or unheard of. I remember not too long ago, maybe 10 years ago, when people were really getting, starting to talk about global warming as serious, in a serious way. In 1992, in that old book, The Natural Shade Garden, I had a chapter on global warming. I, I was surprised to discover that. Uh, but uh, the, the climatologist's forecast for a changing climate said we would begin to feel the effects of global warming by 2050. Well, if you're a gardener, you know you've been feeling those effects for over 10 years, and, and they keep coming. The projection for sea level rise continues to be updated, and by the next century, climatologists predict the ocean will be three feet higher than it is today. And that, that's going to threaten coastlines around the world. Right now, hundreds of millions of people live in these places. Just think of New York City. But many places will become uninhabitable, and some island nations will completely disappear. So, how do we gardeners, home gardeners, how do we go on? How do we push ahead in the face of so much change? I think the gardens of the future will be shade gardens. And there are many reasons for that, fiscal, historical, environmental, and for the sake of our health and for the health of the planet. Uh, now, this is not really a new idea. In many ways, this is an older notion of landscaping. It's planting for generations to come. It won't happen overnight, though. For one thing, it means planting trees. I remember years ago, I. I was giving a lecture in Rochester, New York, and uh, I there was this long boulevard that we drove down, and uh, there were giant beech trees on either side of the boulevard in front of all the houses. In Europe, some of those beech trees can live three or 500 years, 
but in the United States, with our hot summers, they tend to live about 150 years. And those trees, some of those trees I could see were dying. Some of them already had died. There were stumps and there were places where trees might have been and were no longer there. But the, 10 or 15 years ago when I was there, people weren't planting baby beech trees. They weren't replacing those trees. And think of all the children who are growing up today who, if we don't plant trees, they're not going to know what big old trees are like. Even in your town, I'm sure that there's many fewer of those big old trees than there were when you were growing up. Since 1989, I have published several books with the word natural in the title. I use that word to mean naturalistic, a design style that was friendly to nature in appearance and planting and maintenance. Natural doesn't always mean native or what would have lived on this continent in the years before humans arrived. Picture the land thousands of years ago, cleared by lightning sparked fire or Native Americans. Viable seeds in the ground would sprout once exposed to the warmth and the sunlight. In sunny open spaces, these seeds would most likely become meadow plants in the east and prairie plants in the midwest. If there is enough rainfall, shrub and tree seeds would germinate as well, and in time those woody plants would grow tall and cast shade on the meadow plants, which would gradually fade away. Eventually, a deciduous forest might take hold. This is succession, a succession of plants that leads to forests and savannas, plant communities dominated by trees. The leaves of the trees filter sunlight. There would still be enough light in late winter and spring for the woodland ephemerals such as trillium, bloodroot, and mayapple to thrive. These are the new, old models for our gardens. This kind of gardening requires planting, thought, and effort, and some adjustment of expectations. There, there may not be the masses of frothy color under the trees, but I promise you a good show. Just look again at the plants of the forest floor. They have little time to gather light, bloom, attract pollinators, and set seed, so they pack every precious bit of energy into a few spectacular blossoms. You know I love the weird, I call them weird but lovable plants, the species with maybe brown flowers and like the wild ginger and the jack-in-the-pulpit. Uh, they may not have a wonderful perfumey fragrance because they're, they're not attracting bees necessarily. They might be attracting beetles or ants for pollination. But I promise there are plenty of flowers that everyone would consider beautiful, like the Japanese wood poppy and the trillium I mentioned and the Virginia bluebells. To me, all of these shade-loving plants are beautiful, and they're the stars of the botanical kingdom and, and certainly among the most fascinating hardy plants of the natural world. And what else will be different as we increasingly take to the shade? It's a given that you are not going to have the burgeoning rose garden or colorful annuals for cutting, and shady spots will not produce food for your family. But just imagine gardening with remarkable species in places of serene tranquility and enchanting freshness. Shade gardens are our interpretation of, of woodland habitats, and some of those woodland habitats from around the world. Our sheltered plantings might be the most down-to-earth versions of horticulture we can practice. 
Unlike the transitional meadow or the perennial borders or the vegetable gardens, our adaptations of the natural world can create what might be the most sustainable kind of gardening of all. Now just think about how these shady places that are so naturalistic and, the pl and so much like the few wild places you might be able to find it and visit in, in your area, or you might have to go to a national park to see some of some great examples, or, or maybe a, a wildflower garden, public garden, like Garden in the Woods in Framingham, Massachusetts, a wonderful example of everything that I've been talking about. But picture that and think about lawnscapes and uh, some, sometimes acres of lawn that have to be mowed and that people like, and they have their foundation plantings around the house, right up against the house, often with c completely non-native species, plantings that don't really serve the birds or other animals that we'd like to welcome to our gardens, and certainly don't give any shelter for us from the sun, something that's so important to me and I think is important for everyone. And imagine in many places watering that lawn. And as you've heard, I'm sure tons of times, all those golf courses in California and places uh, where everybody has a lawn when there's hardly any water. And now, thankfully, we're having a lot more restrictions on the kinds of home lawnscaping that we can have in areas that are plagued by drought. It just doesn't make sense to water the lawn or even to have lawn unless you need a place for recreation and a lot of people are turning to artificial turf in those places my nephew just put in a whole area for his two young daughters to play and it's a, a, a pretty nice soft artificial turf and that area is completely covered by a, an overhanging canopy so it's a shady spot for the girls to play I have to admit that grass lawn is just about the only living thing that we can grow for recreation and maybe for paths to walk through the garden. But do we need, in the case of some places that I've seen, acres of lawn with a, a, a kind of a McMansion dotted in the middle of it? We just have to change that whole idea, especially in a place that would be a natural woodland. What's wrong with bringing back the trees or letting trees grow or even having a meadow uh, as time goes by as the trees and shrubs take hold. It's not only the natural way, but it's it's uh, in every way sustainable and realistic. When I see people watering lawn or even worse, when the irrigation systems have not been adjusted and are watering the driveway or watering the sidewalk, I don't know, I just want to scream. But uh, in California, they now have apps for that where you can you can rat on your neighbors. It's, it sounds pretty terrible, but uh, if you see a sprinkler head that's off or, uh, and watering the pavement or even watering when it's raining, however rare that might be, uh, you can report it and it will get uh, fixed. So I've made the case for shade, uh, at least briefly here on um, on the podcast and radio show, but I want to tell you that what the book has most is recommendations for plants, hundreds and hundreds of plants that will tolerate uh, light shade, medium shade, filtered shade, partial shade, all the degrees of shade, and, and it doesn't have to be a boring place. It can be filled with color and filled with interesting plants, and you want to have some 
tall trees perhaps and some medium-sized trees and trees of the understory and flowering shrubs and beneath them some taller perennials that will last through the season and again at the bottom at the forest floor those spectacular woodland ephemerals that bring that bloom in early spring and there's nothing like them they're just so beautiful now i'm in love with those plants as you can tell but i want to share that enthusiasm and try to communicate to other gardeners and to lots of people that if you want to have ornamental plantings this is the way to go to make them as naturalistic as possible and to look at the wild areas around your home wild-like areas and try to mimic the those natural situations as you know, nobody's out there watering the woodland. Nobody is out there feeding the woodland. And in many cases, the woodlands, of course, are completely threatened. And if we're losing a woodland in our area, let's try to recreate one around our house. And I, I did say naturalistic, but I want to encourage people to use as many native species as possible because they have co-evolved with the other with animals that live in that kind of environment and that kind of habitat and as uh, my friend Neil DeBall always says uh, do you like birds and everybody says yes he says this to audiences and he said well you better get used to bugs and that's so important because birds eat bugs especially when they have especially when they're reproducing when they have babies in their nests the babies eat bugs and in order to perpetuate the species and to have more birds we've got to have bugs so i've gotten used to having holes in leaves and learning more about holes and leaves that sounds kind of funny but i've noticed that the insects that are not indigenous they tend to to eat and make a hole in a leaf and the insects that are indigenous tend to eat from the outside of the leaf. This is a wild generalization, but it seems to be somewhat true. And when birds are flying around, they're looking for those holes and leaves, and it's easy for them to see. But if an, an insect eats from the edge, it just looks like maybe the shape of the leaf, and it's, it's not as obvious. And the insects have a defense that way. They have many defenses. But still, thousands of bugs are eaten by birds and that's one way nature controls uh, insects so there aren't wild infestations well the book has lots of sections and lots of chapters on things that we want to do in the shade and how to handle situations you if you have big existing trees on your property it's not that easy to plant under them and you don't want to cut their roots so i have a lot of information on how to plant among tree leaves tree roots and if it if that's not possible planting containers above the tree roots something that very few people really think of to do you if you have an old tree and it has a lot of roots there's no reason why you can't have container plantings with shade loving plants above them you don't want to put it directly on the roots but you can just elevate them on some bricks or stones uh, pl carefully placed in among the roots of the trees and as i said fill those with shade tolerant and shade loving plants and there are thousands of them I even have a big section in the book on how to make containers and how to make hypertufa containers. That's that's a kind of mix of cement and coir and perlite. 
and uh, I have step-by-step -step instructions on making your own containers that plants love to live in. And watering those containers, that's something to think about because we have to conserve all the water that we possibly can. If you live in a place like I do, where we get almost 50 inches of rain every year, I still want to conserve water, but I do have access to water. And there are times of drought, but generally that's not the case. Uh, if anything, we have a little bit too much water at times, or I do anyway, living on an island in a river. But I have uh, directions and instructions on how to keep water in those containers and keep those plants moist. This is just the beginning for me. I'm, the book is coming out this week and I've got to put together a lecture with pictures and start traveling around and talking about the new shade garden, creating lush oases in the age of climate change. Join me again next week for another edition of Kendrew's Real Dirt Gardening 2.0.